0: All right, Rachel, I'm excited to have you on, especially because we literally just talked (laughs) less than a week ago, or was it exactly a week ago? I think it was exactly a week ago. I
1: think it was a lot. Yeah, because a lot. Is it Thursday? I don't even know what day it is anymore, but it was last Thursday. So yeah, Yeah. about a week ago.
0: Yeah. So um, I already knew a good amount about you. I've seen your name and your podcast float around quite a few times leading up to that. Um, So I was excited for us to get connected. We did the podcast last week, which went extremely well. I had a blast coming on your show. And now we get to return the favor and bring you on here to highlight you and talk about you. So first and foremost, give the listeners an intro. Tell us who you are um, and a little bit about why you do what you do. And then I'm going to kind of pick apart your background. But just give us Rachel in a nutshell for now.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll try to keep it brief. I tend to ramble on. So again, like I mentioned off air, feel free to interrupt me. Um, So just to kind of go back, I uh, grew up playing sports my whole life, Um, grew up in New York. Um, I was really into just all things, all things athletics Uh, through high school. I played basketball and softball. Um, I thought that I was going to go on and play basketball in college. I ended up getting injured my junior year, which kind of cut me off from being able to do that. I missed my whole season. And so I actually, as I was going into college and thinking about what I wanted to major in, I realized that if I couldn't be an athlete, I could kind of find the next best thing, which would be treating athletes. So I decided to go to the University of Miami and get my undergrad in athletic training, sports medicine. Um, as I was there, I actually found that um, getting more into my sophomore year of college, I started take, I took my first nutrition class and I was like, oh man, like I love nutrition. I started getting really into it taking more classes and realized that uh, athletic training might not be the career path that i wanted to go down um, and so at that point i decided to kind of think into the future and think about what i could do to get more into the nutrition and also feel like the strength conditioning side of things i was really getting into that um, i did triathlons in college but i also started to getting more into lifting um as i as like my senior year came around so Anyway, kind of fast forward into grad school. I went and got my master's degree in nutrition exercise physiology, um, and I was working as an athletic trainer at the time. So it was a two-year program, and uh, that was at James Madison University. And um, we had to do a master's thesis study. So my advisor at the time he basically told my class, "Hey, go out and go into the research, and first of all, find something that you'd be interested in, um, and find something that's not." that hasn't been done already. Right. So, you know, when you go into the literature, it's, there's like so much obviously there. And so for me, I, as I got into grad school, I kind of transitioned out of triathlons, out of the endurance style training, just because I knew I wouldn't have time to train for that. And I was also uh, looking for something different. Um, So I found CrossFit in, uh, in grad school, I wanted to just get find something that had still that competitive aspect to it had like that community vibe and just something that I could go and get like a quick workout in a few days a week, nothing, you know, like super time consuming. Um, so I'd found CrossFit as I got into grad school. And then when it was time to pick a subject for my thesis study, um, I realized that I wanted to do a nutritional intervention in an exercise population. Sorry. I just hit my microphone. I talk with my hands a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> apologize. Um, so at that point, there was very, if not, no research looking at, a uh, ketogenic type diet in, in CrossFit athletes. Um, so that was, I came, that was when keto started to get a little bit popular. That was like in 2014, 2015. Um, so I decided to take the ketogenic diet and see how it could affect non-elite CrossFit athletes. And I preface non-elite because these were just your average Joe kind of your mom and, and just working, you know, average Joe going to CrossFit a few days a week, trying to just get a good workout in, um, looking for some potential fat loss, body composition changes. Um, so that's, you know, what I did for that study. So the study was, and I'm sure we're going to dive into this. So I won't go down that rabbit hole yet. Um, but it was looking at the body composition changes in non-elite CrossFit athletes using a ketogenic approach. Um, so that study was, it was successful and it got published. And after I graduated, I actually kind of went down the, the low carb. I call it the low carb keto rabbit hole myself. Um, I found advantages to implementing a low carb lifestyle for myself for a while. Um, lots of kind of the mental clarity side of things, like the mental focus, not really being food focused so much. I, it, it actually gave me a lot of appetite control for a period of time. Um, And then as I continued on, as I got deeper down the rabbit hole, went deeper down uh, like the fasting rabbit hole, I like to call it um, started to realize that that might not be the best approach. Um, So started to make a lot of mistakes for myself, worked with a lot of clients at that time, I was getting into coaching. And just throughout those years, I realized that Um, I kind of found myself bringing, bringing it back to more of like a balanced approach. And this is what I kind of call metabolic flexibility. And we'll talk about that as well Is just really kind of being able to use the full spectrum of your metabolism. So kind of, you know, going through that keto low carb, you know, period of time, being able to kind of prime my body to use ketones and fat for fuel, um, but also using carbs, you know, when it's warranted. So I found that with a lot of my clients um, that I was working with, they were coming from a keto approach and they were starting to get a little bit too far on that side of the spectrum where they just completely cut out carbs, like hundred um, percent. and they were struggling to bring them back in, not just from like a physiological standpoint, but a psychological standpoint. And I found that myself, I was very carb phobic. Um, for a period of time. Like I was literally afraid to eat like a piece of watermelon. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, But it's, it's something that I've seen a lot. Like a lot of the clients I work with are coming from that strict keto, low carb, and they just don't know how to like bring carbs back into their life. And a lot of it's coming from a psychological standpoint, but there is some physiological stuff as well. So anyways, I am rambling, but I um, got, I ended up writing a book um, I ended up starting a podcast and getting more, oh, I got away from CrossFit for a little bit more into bodybuilding style training in the last few years. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of stuff, but that brings me to where I'm at, where I'm at today. And I will stop rambling. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I, I love it. I think, uh, the thing I like about that story and you particularly is the, the ebbs and flows of it and the willingness to, I mean, even publish research in the ketogenic realm and then be able to say, but you know. There's the pros and cons, and I've switched this, and I've kept this, and to me, that's what a good nutritionist is. It's somebody that understands nutrition as a whole, not as a dogmatic approach. So I love the way you went about that, especially the, the evolution of it. And I think mm-hmm. at points in times, and I've done this too, at points in times throughout your career, you get a little dogmatic about a certain topic because that's what you're diving into. But that's where experience over years comes into play because you begin to shift things. But uh, I do want to ask a little bit about the study. Um, You said it was the first of its kind. I believe there's been multiple research studies on, uh, definitely on keto and just the athlete world, but as well as keto and CrossFit now, right? Like, did that kind of be a catalyst to other ones to come?
1: Yeah, so there's been a few, honestly, I I haven't looked into it like just recently, but there has been a few other research studies um, looking at keto and CrossFit. Um, For mine, it was it wasn't the, I think it it was the first one. There was a few other ones that were actually going on at the same time, I think. Um, but yeah, I believe there is a few more now, but I I, it's still very minimal in terms of like actually keto and CrossFit. Um, but yeah.
0: What would you do differently if you could do anything? I mean, just looking at the way the study was designed and, and, uh, perfect world scenario, because I'm sure you got this. And, and I know a lot of researchers, I don't conduct research. So I'm the one that's yeah. like, man, it'd be cool if you would have been able to do this. And then the research is oh, like, yeah. okay, but funding and sourcing. And then you're like, oh yeah, shit. I don't know anything about actually conducting <laughs> research. So um, I'm sure people nitpick it of like, yeah, well, they didn't uh, control this and that, which is a whole, whole nother aspect, but considering you don't have any, you know, financial or or limitation or anything like that, uh, yeah. what would you do differently today? Like what did you take away from it and kind of wish you would have been able to do back then, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are probably so, so many different things. Um, it was the first, you know, research study that I embarked in. So I was, and it was also like my first, like I was in grad school. So I was still new to like a lot of the research side of things. Um, but just the the length of the study, obviously it was only six weeks long. And a lot of people look at, look at that and be like, why didn't you do it longer? Um, and you know, I did have two years to do this study, but six week, a six week study in a two year period is actually a very, uh, it's actually a lot. <laughs> um, so it uh, cause we have to do all of like the pre kind of pre-testing and all that pre-stuff for the study, which takes like probably half a year to get everything organized and then actually going through the study and then all the stuff afterwards. So if I could, like, if I had more time, obviously a longer study would have been probably, and definitely better than six weeks. Um, kind of looking back at what we did, I would have probably did a little bit of a different testing protocol for like the exercise portion. Um, so we did a time-based exercise, uh, pre and post testing looked at, um, like, a uh, basically a Metcon for time and see, and over the six weeks, we wanted to see if their time improved. So basically how long it took them, if they were able to do it in less time, we also did some power measurements. So vertical and standing long jump probably would have done those a little bit different to be just a little bit more aligned with CrossFit. Uh, but there were some things where it was hard to like pick these different things. Cause we had um, like our subjects were coming from, they all had been the, the, one of the requirements was they had to be doing CrossFit for at least a month or two, I believe it was, but they all kind of had different experience levels. So it's like, you have to find, okay, what is the best kind of testing to use for everybody so that it can be standardized, right? So that was one thing that I'd probably dive a little bit more into and find something with like that. Um, within the study, we the, the thing that we kind of recommended for the, because we took, I'll just, do you want me to just like quickly run through it? <laughs> Absolutely. Some people, if they haven't seen it. So it was a 60 study. We were looking at, uh, we w- wanted to look at the body composition changes, right? So we were looking at fat loss, um, and body fat percentage loss, and then obviously weight loss along with that, um, within the six weeks for the ketogenic diet group versus a control group, which was just this, like a standard American diet, Um, and we wanted to see if they could lose if the keto group could lose a significant amount of body fat within that six week period compared to the control group. And when I say significant, I mean, statistically significant when you do the comparisons. Um, and we wanted to see if they could maintain their performance to the same degree as the control group throughout the six weeks. And what we, what we ended up finding was that throughout the six weeks on average, and I always preface this, and I know that you you know, this, but just listening, like studies are averages, right? So there's all going to be individual variants. So on average, the keto group lost a significant, statistically significant amount of body fat than that six weeks. And they're actually able to increase their performance to the same degree that the control group was in the sense of the, the timing of that workout was lessened. So they were able to do it more efficiently. Um, and so that was the kind of overall study. And with the keto group, the one thing that we told them was, or that I told them is that they need to keep their carbs under total, a total of 50 grams. And they were just told to eat ad limitum, right? So eat till you're satisfied. Um, we did two, we did food logs every two weeks for three days each week, um, and track some of those different things. So one of the things I probably would have done differently is get a little bit more dialed in with their protein and, and fat intake, um, just to kind of, you know, get those variables to be a little bit more controlled. Um, so that's probably another thing I would do. There's so many different things that I would do. Um, yeah, it would probably be the workout, the, a little bit more control over the nutrition side of things. We also know like when we, when they kind of, uh, were taking their food logs and stuff, we took all of that and put it into a database to analyze all the stuff. We know that food logs are obviously very variable for what people are actually, eating versus what they're recording. Um, So if we had some other metric that we could use for that, but it was supposed to be a very real life study in the sense of, obviously we weren't in like a metabolic ward or we weren't like doing it. We weren't giving them their food. Like they were eating, you know, the foods that they have it available. They were just had some guidance along with that. So yeah, there's probably some other things that I'm not thinking of, but there are a lot of things they probably would have done differently.
0: Well, I like the, the thing you just added too of it being a very lifestyle- oriented study because i think a lot of people would even i mean you could ask questions about the control aspect but if we really consider the average crossfitter who jumps into keto it might be keto it might be more of a low carb approach but the whole thing is like and i would love to get your thoughts because i'm sure this might might be a critique but was it do you think it was keto specifically or more of like these people finally had a structured calorie intake a structured diet or calorie deficit versus lack of knowledge of what to do, right? So maybe they could have got similar results on a different protocol, but it's the fact that you stepped in and actually gave them a protocol period that allowed them to see such good success.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. That could have been definitely a factor, a factor for sure. Also kind of thinking about like keto and cross, but there's a lot of, you know, backfire on that because, you know, we're told cross is very high intense sport and you need carbs. And I like, looking back now, I don't like from what I would know now, how many years later is this 2014 to 20, almost 2022. I can't do the math seven, eight years, whatever that is. I probably like wouldn't have thought this would be like a practical study, just like knowing that like all the things that I've gone through. And it's not, not that it wouldn't be a practical study, but just looking at pairing keto with CrossFit can be Um, I think that it really just is so individualized. So I wouldn't want to put it on an average when I'm saying that, I mean, depends, you know, what that person's individual goal is, where they're coming from, you know, if they are like, this was in non-elite CrossFit athletes. I I say that, um, and 90% of the people going to CrossFit are going to be just your average Joe. Like if you go in an average box, it's just going to be someone looking to get a good workout in. They're not really looking to go to like the CrossFit games or anything like that. Um, there is obviously a subset. Um, but it's so individualized with the individual. Like, what are their stress levels like? Like, how how much are they actually um, like exercising? How much are they recovering? And so, with that, and knowing that, and taking that approach, you know, over the last years with my clients on an individualized uh, basis, sometimes it's like we look at the research. And we're like, oh, you know, these are like it says one thing, but you just always have to remember that that was like an average outcome of yeah. those people, right? So I think sometimes the research can be a little bit uh, deceiving in that sense. If you, if you're not really, if you don't really understand how to interpret it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a huge key. I, I mean, in general too, I, so I pulled up the study this morning and then I also looked at some stuff that I've written about with this and I've referenced studies and it wasn't your study. And so I was just looking at dates and stuff and I'm pretty sure yours was like basically like the first one, which is cool. Cause it's kind of a catalyst to, um, you know, every time there's a study to be the first of its kind in area, it sets off a catalyst for way more studies to be basically the exact same with critiques and additions because you can't do a study perfectly. And I think this is what yeah. I've learned as I've read more and more research, as we brought on research to the team and stuff. A lot of times I look back at how I interpreted them and now I can, man, like my thoughts were so wrong or like, I didn't understand what it took to actually put this on. So when I would give critiques it's just unreal reasonable, you know, and, and I feel yeah. bad for researchers now that I know them because it's like, man, you guys just get shots fired at you uh, and you can't control some of this stuff. Uh, but I do think it's cool because it really was a catalyst in a way for for more keto ketogenic research with the athletic population versus just the medical community, which was mainly what it was for originally. Um, So I know you said at the beginning, you're not uh, like you wouldn't classify yourself as a keto person, but I do want to go into it a little bit because it's something that we don't talk about too much on the podcast. And knowing that you have a background and a good understanding of it, I'd love to learn more um, about your thoughts on it. And, And obviously, you can preface what has changed and what hasn't. But I mean, really, like, what are the benefits you mentioned some productivity, some psychological stuff. So I'd love to hear about that, who this is for, how to implement it, kind of just running through your thoughts now that you've gone through this journey on the ketogenic diet, Um, kind of like what you thought and what you found versus what you've seen now that you have experience on top of the research you've done and learned. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned, you know, just kind of going through the last year is working with tons of different types of clients. I work with a lot of clients who are coming from you know, they implemented keto and they found success with it in terms of, you know, what they're, and this is all individual as well, but in terms of just getting away from a lot of the the food focus and just thinking about food all the time, um, having some benefits in terms of that mental clarity, that focus throughout the day, um, being able to implement a little bit more fasting, a little bit easier, um, if that was their goal, but I've just found that it's just so individual to the person and where they're coming from. Um, so I like to kind of look at it on, on a spectrum. So if you look at kind of like a spectrum of body composition and activity level. So if you are on like the leaner side, the more active side, um, versus someone who's more on the, maybe they're overweight or obese. So they're suffering from any type of insulin resistance, or they're just a little bit more sedentary. Like they're, those are kind of like the two extremes, right? And so kind of thinking about implementing a ketogenic diet, I think the, the more, the end more where you're kind of overweight, maybe a little bit sedentary, all that. Um, I think it has more implications on that side. If you're looking to implement a ketogenic diet versus if you're on the leaner side, there are, I still think there's benefits to going through a period of ketosis, um, just to kind of, if you are someone who has been high carb your whole life and you've never really experienced being in a state of ketosis or, you know, you know, just experiencing that in general, a lot of people don't know that, you know, we're actually born in a state of ketosis. um, and we go through the first kind of Few weeks, months of our lives in a state of ketosis because we're either drinking our mom's breast milk, which is very high fat, um, or if we're on formula, if you're f- on a good formula, it's going to be high fat, and so you're actually in a state of ketosis. And we know also, like if we look back, kind of at our ancestors, right? We know that just like in the last, you know, ten thousand years, our our DNA and our genetics have not changed that much, right? But our like in the last hundred years, we've gone from hunter gatherers to you know. Factory and farming and so if we look kind of back 100 years ago or even 50 years ago like a little bit more than that our you know ancestors they were metabolically flexible by necessity so they went into periods of ketosis just from necessity but then they also went into periods of eating a little bit higher carbs um, depending on the seasons things like that so that's kind of where that metabolic flexibility side comes into um, so kind of going back to your original question I think that Um, with keto can be beneficial for someone who is looking to, um, if they are coming from that higher carb, you know, always higher carb for their entire life, never experienced ketosis or never experienced that state. Um, if they are, um, maybe a little bit more sedentary. So maybe they're only working out a few days a week. uh, They have like an office job. They're really looking to, um, you know, emphasize their mental clarity and their focus throughout the day. Um, but again, it just, it does come down to that individual. And I think one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle is the overall stress load that that person is experiencing, especially when it comes to females. Cause those are a lot of the female, the people that I work with are females. Um, and so stress is one of the biggest things that I found for myself, um, that I made a lot of mistakes with, with the stress side of things and thinking that, you know, more is going to be better when it's not actually not, um, going really far down, like the fasting rabbit hole. Cause we know that keto and fasting can go hand in hand and it can be beneficial at certain periods of time. But if you're going like way down that, like, Oh, if I fast a little bit, it's good. If I fast more, it's better. Not really. Um, so I think that is one of the biggest things that I work with a lot of my clients with is just, okay, where are you at? And your overall stress throughout your like life right now. Right. Because Stress all goes to the same place, whether it's from your training, from your, you know, kids, you know, screaming at home, and you know, I, I just had a client yesterday who, um, was going. We started a, we just started a fat loss phase, and she's like, I thought my kids were going back to school, and now with COVID, they're back at home, and now I'm all stressed out again. I'm like, all right, let's take a step back and reevaluate yeah. the plan. Um, so stress is a huge piece of it as well. Um, also, just where you're coming from too. So I mentioned that I work with a lot of clients who, um, who are coming from a, a period where they did find a lot of benefits from keto in the beginning. And now they came to a point where it's like, it's not working for them anymore. So they need to try something else. Um, and that I, I've also worked with a lot of clients who have gone so far down, like I said, myself to this side of the spectrum. And we can talk about this as well, where they're becoming so metabolically inflexible on the side of the spectrum where they just can't utilize carbs efficiently anymore because they've taken them out of their regimen for so long. Um, and so that's where my passion for metabolic flexibility kind of comes in because I've seen a lot of people struggle with that side. And it's not really talked about that much because it is kind of a newer thing with keto becoming popular over the past four to five years. We see people who've been keto like strict keto for like two or three years. And literally they have like try to use carbs and, and bring carbs back in and they can't do it from a psychological standpoint. And then physiological, physiologically, their body is adapted so far to that other end that they just can't absorb and use those carbs that their blood sugar is just going all over the place. And there, it's just like a kind of a mess. So,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's so, there's so much I want to pick apart there. Uh, okay. So I think you made a good point with, um, the adaptive part of this. And it's, it's kind of funny. Cause like, you remember the term shock the muscle like that used to be oh, yeah. term, like, and it's very unscientific but <laughs> very bro <scientific. laughs> Yeah. but like there's some research that does point to some of this. And it, it, to me, it makes sense with the diet side of things too, because there's people who jump on keto and they get great results at first. There's people who jump onto paleo and get great results at first. There's people who jump into CrossFit and get great results at first. Speaking of body composition, if your goal is to get good at the sport of CrossFit, that's different because you want to adapt but fat loss is actually trying to almost avoid adaptation in a sense because your body's trying to create homeostasis so it makes a lot of sense when you say yeah keto does work and people go down this rabbit hole and it's working great until it doesn't because you've adapted and if you're trying to um, do the opposite you know you're trying to be a gas guzzler versus a hybrid you're trying to burn calories not become a hybrid and get so efficient that your body starts doing it because it's like oh i'm comfortable now i get it Mm -hmm. um but on the on the neurological side, I'd love for you to touch on that if you can. Uh, the the baby the fact on the babies that's I didn't even never heard that, never even thought about that. But that makes a, a lot of sense, and it also makes a lot of sense because uh, you know during birth and during breastfeeding, like omega threes are super super important in good fats because they're so helpful for the neurological development of a baby, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Ketosis at, at a young age, as well as when people intermittent fast or going to ketosis and they experience this improvement of Uh, productivity, clarity, um, just being able to work, right? I I don't know if that's a neurological adaptation or or development happening, but there's tons of people who say that. And even I will intermittent fast at times when I'm busy because I'm just more productive in the morning. Um, And there was a few things I thought of when I thought of this. um, And your statement with the babies kind of relates to even the studies on high doses of fish oil being helpful for Mm -hmm. neurological like mood improvements depression improvements stuff like that so i guess my question is what is going on here if the and this is where i think people get confused carbs are the main fuel source for the brain yet we were born using ketones Mm -hmm. and when we go into ketosis we're more productive and we can work harder and faster and anecdotally speaking there's nobody who debates that really because anybody who experiences it they know it's true i always kind of thought it was like a cortisol thing like you know when you don't have carbs or in the morning cortisol is higher, is it, is it uh-huh. some of that? And you're kind of riding that cortisol wave, which can be fine if you manage it well, or is there something else going on with this if you do it properly?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a few different things going on and like, yeah, like you mentioned the cortisol and, and adrenaline as well. Um, we know that. So keto, right. Being in a state of ketosis this is something I like to talk about too, because you know, there's so many different, you know, camps out there within nutrition. Right. And there's so many people like, you know, saying keto is just a fad diet and all this stuff, but literally ketosis is a metabolic state, right? So you can say it's a fad diet if you want, and people use it that way, which I wouldn't advocate that. Um, we also know that like there's ketone supplements out there that are people take advantage of or supplement companies take advantage of people in that way with the supplement side of things, but ketosis is a metabolic state. Literally your body can go in a state of ketosis and in that sense, you are uh, basically bringing your blood sugar down, bringing your insulin down, um, reducing your carb intake, so your body needs to rely on a different fuel source. So it starts to rely on your on fat um, and ketones for fuel, right? So you start to produce ketones, which can cross the blood brain barrier and be used as a fuel source for the brain. Um, so I think, you know, ketones in themselves can be. Uh, like some people refer to them as kind of like the fourth macronutrient. Um, if you think about it, cause it is a fuel source. If you're able to tap into your body fat stores for fuel. Um, this is also gets a little bit confusing because people are like, Oh, well, if I'm burning fat for fuel, that means that I must be losing a ton of fat. doesn't really work like that. Yes. You can be burning tons of fat for fuel, but obviously we know calories matter calories in calories out. So if you're over-consuming past that, you know, maintenance or whatever it may be, you're going to gain fat, even if you are burning fat for fuel on keto, uh, just clarifying that. But anyway, I think ketones can be, and we know from the research that ketones can be an alternate fuel source for the brain. And that's actually where the diet started, right? It started for, it started to treat children who had epilepsy. They started to put them on a ketogenic diet, high fat, uh, you know, low carb, low, low protein, which We can also talk about that as well in terms of a standard keto diet for, for someone who's treating a medical disease versus a ketogenic diet for someone who's looking to increase their body composition or just get overall mental clarity. Those can be separate things. There can be tons of different types of ketogenic diets in that realm. But anyway, ketones can be used as a fuel source for the brain. And we know that through the research, through, you know, treating tons of different diseases. that not treating, but uh, being beneficial in in certain disease states. So we know that there's some research coming out on like Alzheimer's disease, obviously epilepsy is where it all started. Um, you know, there's so many other kind of metabolic issues that have been um, beneficial, benefited from using a ketogenic approach. And it's look kind of thinking about ketones as that fuel source, uh, alternate fuel source for the brain. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the, not a lot, but some of the mental clarity comes from and the focus can come from actually utilizing those ketones, but then also, um, you know, like you said, there's going to be some adrenaline, there's going to be, um, that cortisol component of it. So that's where we're kind of thinking like, all right, so we're, we're putting ourselves into this state and it is actually a stress on our body. Like, Especially if we're not used to it, right? Anything that you're not used to is going to be a stress on your body. And there's good stress, right? And then there's stress that it can be good at first, and then as you continue to go and go and go, it can actually turn into a bad stress because you're actually overdoing it. And so that's where um, there's a fine line, I think, with you know going on, going into a keto drink diet, you know, following that approach, and then realizing when you've gone a little bit too far and kind of pulling back. Um, but I think to answer your original question, I think people don't realize that ketones are, are are a fuel in themselves and they can be beneficial for the brain. And we know that that's where it actually all started is with the brain. So.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, I think the hard part for me to always was the hard part was like, if I guess it's just that balance, it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way too, because, you know, uh, it makes sense. Cause if you are producing ketones and it's an alternative fuel source, the only other fuel source you have is carbs. But if you, if you intake carbs in the meal, then you spike insulin, cortisol drops, adrenaline drops, and then you don't have that as well to help focus. So maybe it's like, you know, cortisol and ketones kind of piggybacking on each other. And I've even heard, um, uh, I wanted to say it was, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, I think is his name. He has that podcast, Huberman lab, really good podcast, but he talks about, uh, your peripheral vision when cortisol goes up, it actually shrinks. So when you get tunnel vision, it's actually like a real thing when cortisol is higher so that would even make sense. Your focus and then add ketones to the mix. It just it kind of doubles down. Now, you mentioned the difference between the medical version, which I've talked about a lot of people know of. This is the ultra low carb, pretty low protein, really high fat. How do you personally mix this up for somebody who is interested in body composition changes? Because there's a lot of talk and I haven't dug into this, but you know, protein can take you out of ketosis. Well, how much is acceptable, uh, you know, and I'm sure it depends on how active they are, how much muscle I have, all that stuff, but I'd love for you to break that down of how you would program that. Cause I think that's where it becomes a lot more helpful for a lot of the listeners. I think is cause they're like, okay, well, how does this actually apply to me?
1: Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. And I think there is a little bit of misinformation, um, around protein can kick you out of ketosis side of things. I know there was a big, there's a big period of time, you know, through, I think it was a few years ago where people started to get, especially in the low carb community, it's like, oh, protein is going to, because of gluconeogenesis, it's going to kick you out of ketosis, like protein's bad, all this stuff. Um, actually when I first started out in keto, like I actually took that approach where it's like, okay, I'm just going to, and this is what the study was looking at. Right. I told you, we, we just had them look at like reduce their carb intake and their protein and fat could fall where, where it may, where where it happened, right? Um and it ended up being that they did just inadvertently consume a little bit more fat, but their protein intake wasn't like super, super low. It was on the low to moderate side. But I have found over the years that implementing a like higher uh, implementing a higher protein approach within a ketogenic diet has been so much more beneficial for anybody who's just looking for general health, body composition, all of that. I think restricting protein can actually be very a disadvantage to someone who is trying to do that. I think that uh, a standard keto approach where you're doing very low carb, high fat, low protein should only be used in the medical population if it's warranted. And the reason for that is, 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 if because you are trying to elevate your ketones so high to treat something or to mitigate something or to get those ketones to fuel your brain, you know, throughout the entire day for, for long periods of time, but for your average person, they don't like, you don't need to have really, really high ketones, right. To get the benefits of that. And with that being said, you know, having protein, we know there's so many benefits to a higher protein approach for all things. Like when it comes to body composition, health, longevity, all of that. So I think there's just some misinformation out there. And if you don't, you know, and you know, this too, like with the education side of things, if you're not educated on what you're, what you're doing. So if you just Google ketogenic diet and you like, Oh, okay, I'm going to follow this high fat, low protein, low carb. Like that is where a lot of the issues come. Cause people are just not educated on, Oh, like you can actually follow a higher protein approach and get a lot more benefits from that and just reduce your carbs and you can get into a state of ketosis. Um, so I definitely, and over the years I've advocated and definitely myself followed a higher protein approach, um, for many different reasons. But with all that being said, I don't think a standard high fat keto diet, in my opinion, is a good route to go unless you're really like, you want your ketones to be super high for a specific reason.
0: Um, How, how high are you allowing your protein to go? Or do you kind of increase it as you go and test to see, make sure you're still there in ketosis?
1: Yeah. And so this is going to come back to the individual as well. Um, so I think it depends on like where they're on, where they are on, on where they are at on that spectrum that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but from my experience, like we can bump, bump protein up pretty high. And it really just comes down to what your carb intake is. Like if you can reduce your carbs and that is where, you know, we kind of are getting into that state of ketosis or not, but then also realizing like, you don't have to like, there's a little bit of like confusion with being in ketosis like 24 seven is, is that beneficial? And so that's where like my kind of metabolic flexibility side of things comes into play. Like we don't need to be in ketosis 24 seven to get the benefits. Um, there can be benefits to that, but it's so dependent on the individual and what their ultimate goal is. Um, but with like the metabolic flexibility side of things, my big thing is like being able to use the fuel source that is warranted at the time of the activity that you're doing and being able to efficiently go back and forth between those fuel sources. Whereas someone who's metabolically inflexible, whether it's on the side of they've been super high, like they've been, you know, super low carb keto for a long time and they just their body doesn't know how to use carbs anymore, or they're on the other side where they've been high carb, high calorie, high consumption, maybe insulin resistance, and their body is becoming more resistance to use resistance resistant to efficiently using carbs. And so they're on those sides of the spectrum and it's really finding that middle ground so that you can, you know, if you're sitting at your desk throughout the day and you're literally sedentary, you're, you shouldn't be typically burning a lot of carbs for fuel, right? Cause you're just sitting there, right? You're sitting there working on your computer for hours, whatever it may be. You should be, be able to tap into your fat stores, be able to tap into potentially getting into, um, a little bit of a state of ketosis to use that as fuel. Cause that's gonna be more efficient versus if you're, you know, out doing exercise or you're sprinting on a treadmill or whatever it is, like, obviously glucose is going to be what you're using. Um, so it's basically being able to efficiently go back and forth between those. And also, you know, you talked about you, impl- I know you're like definitely love carbs and, and implant <laughs> carbs. I do too. Um, but you did, you do a little bit of intermittent fasting depending on your goals. Right. And so it's like kind of thinking about you know, if you're able to wake up in the morning and intermittent fast and not feel like you have to eat right away, not feel like you are, you know, pulling up that third cup of coffee to get that caffeine hit. Like if you're able to do that, that is a sign of metabolic flexibility because your body is saying, okay, I am okay. Like I have some fat stores on me. I am safe. I can use these for fuel versus if you, you know, weren't able to do that, that would be kind of a sign of, of metabolic inflexibility. And that this is like a whole rabbit hole. So I'm going to shut up and let you ask a question.
0: No, that's good. Um, So real quick, and then we'll dive into metabolic flexibility because I think we need to kind of define that for people. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, High protein on a keto diet for somebody like myself, are we talking, you know, let's say I want to, my goal is productivity and health and maybe lose a little bit of fat, but body weight, 0.8 grams or 0.8 times body weight, like a little bit low body weight. You know, the spectrum of protein recommendations is like, the literature saying 0.7 grams per pound and then bodybuilders all the way up to 1.5 at times, depending on the person's weight and where they're at. Um, I think 1.5 is probably, I'm assuming pushing it if you're on a ketogenic diet, but are we talking around body weight or probably more like the typical recommendation of literature?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've seen people like be able to consume one to 1.2 grams per pound of body. weight. Obviously it's going to depend like what their body weight is. If they're, Mm -hmm. 400 pounds, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, but just kind of average, like they can still be in a state of ketosis. So that's why I think there's a little bit of confusion, especially just among different camps. And and also within like the literature, a little bit of conflicting information in terms of that protein intake. I think that that's where we're talking about, like majoring in the minor, like if your goal is to get into into ketosis and you are overall healthy and you want to do it for the mental clarity side of things, just pay attention to your carb intake, like keep protein on the higher end for what you feel good with to support, you know, lean muscle mass retention, all of that. Um, and, you know, obviously your calories are going to play play in that as well. So, like, one, 1.2 grams per pound is you can still typically get in, into a safe dosage. I've done it myself. Um, but yeah, it, it really comes back down to like that individual person and, and kind of testing and assessing because activity level is going to play a role as well in terms of that so
0: yeah um okay and then as a good transition into the next one the last things on keto would be number one you you kind of brushed off the ketones thing and i'm just curious because i get asked questions about those all time and i've never actually taken the time to look into them because uh-huh. um there's just like you said there's just there's ketone water there's ketone you know what i mean It's just stupid <laughs> at this point, but there's obviously a lot of people who point to research on ketones as a supplement. So I'd love to hear just briefly, like, are they worth it if you're doing this, like modified ketogenic approach? And then also when people are going to this, do you even feel the need to use, um, I know there's like urine strips, things like that to test ketosis, or do you try to avoid that? Cause I don't know how accurate those are. Um, Again this is just out of my world, but do you do you recommend doing that stuff when you're implementing this stuff or maybe adding the ketone supplements to help with the metabolic flexibility of kicking back and forth
1: mm-hmm yeah. So to answer your question on the testing ketones part first, so there's different ways you can test your ketones. Uh, urine is the most common cause it's going to be the cheapest form. Um, that I think testing urine ketones is a good way to see if you are starting to produce ketones in the sense of, you know, some people want that reassurance for what they're, and that's one of the things that I thought was really cool when I first embarked on the research was like, Oh man, like I can literally see if I'm following this correctly because mm-hmm. it's telling me. And we used, a, we did urine ketone testing at that time. Um, but we used a machine to tell us like where they were at in terms of the amount of ketones they were producing. Um, if we could have tested, that was one thing I would do differently too. If we could have tested blood, that would have been awesome, but we didn't have the funding for that. Um, and also the monitors, like this was back when that wasn't really a thing. Um, so you can test it through your urine, your blood, your breath. Um, With urine ketones though, the the thing to realize is that when you first go into a ketogenic state, like your body is going to start to produce ketones and you're going to start to actually pee them out. And so you're actually wasting the ketones and that's what's showing up in your urine versus your body being able to use them for energy. Hmm. Um, So you become more efficient and this is, you know, typically you become more efficient at actually utilizing those ketones for fuel, the more your body adapts to that, just like anything else. And so you actually start to produce less in your urine, the longer you're kind of on or in ketosis. Mm. So I think that they're a good tool in the beginning. If you're someone who's looking to get some reassurance that you're "quote unquote" doing it like properly, I guess, which that's a whole other thing as well. (laughs) Um, But I think they can be beneficial for someone who wants to see that. I typically have gone away from like, actually paying attention to even being in ketosis or not in the sense of testing it in the blood breath or urine. Um, just because I like to look at all the other aspects that are going on in terms of like just subjective, how they're feeling versus the objective of the measurements. Um, so that's something that in my coaching practice, I typically don't push testing ketones or anything like that. Cause it's also variable too. Um, so I think, did that answer your first question? about Yeah, intestine? absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Okay, and it cool. makes a lot of sense too, why people yeah. maybe feel like they're getting kicked out from having low protein, but maybe it's not that. It's just that you're actually been in ketosis for a while. So it's not showing up on your urine trip anymore. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And if you just think about it practically, like, okay, if I'm you know starting to, my body hasn't adapted to using this fuel source yet. So I'm going to be kind of... Uh, peeing out some as, as they say, um, until it starts to adapt to that. And it's like, oh, okay, now I recognize this fuel. So I'm going to start to use it. Right. Um, so it kind of just makes sense from a practical standpoint, but in terms of ketone supplements, so yeah, that's a huge rabbit hole to go down. Um, that's another thing that I don't personally like implement in my coaching practice. Like I don't have like any of my clients taking ketone supplements, I think that there is a lot of misinformation on that as well. I think there's the supplement industry in general. Um, there's a lot of kind of taking advantage of people in that sense of, Oh, here's a ketone drink, you know, drink this, you'll be into ketosis, go eat like a burger and fries and whatever it all be. Okay. Uh, I think that's bullshit, but as I'm sure you agree with, um, but I do think that if you're educated on like what ketones are and that they can be useful one is realizing that probably if you go in your average GNC or you go on Amazon, you're like ketone supplement, you're probably gonna get something that is like a, something that has like a very minimal amount of ketones and it's gonna be a ketone salt um, and it's not gonna do anything. Um, So that's one thing, like where are you getting it from? And this is with any supplement, right? Like you have to do your own research and find you know a company you trust and how much they're actually, how many ketones are actually in that product. Most products are gonna be ketone salts Um, whereas ketone esters are another form of uh, ketone supplements, which are a bit stronger, but they taste really, really bad. So it's going like with the research, a lot of the research is in ketone esters, which we see benefits from, but that isn't something that is, is very accessible to like your lay person because they literally taste like you're drinking, like fuel, like gas fuel. Um, so Yeah. So that's like kind of a whole other rabbit hole, but there is some research looking at implementing ketone esters in like, um, endurance athletes and seeing benefits for that fuel source because it's a high enough amount to consume. Then also in the medical research, I know there's been some research on Parkinson's disease, um, utilizing ketone esters in that form. Um, but again, that's not going to be like your average ketone supplement that you find on Amazon, because those are going to be the salts. Um, so, With that being said, I think with ketones themselves, I think we still have a a long way to go in the supplement side of things for that to be beneficial to your average person. Um, I think, you know, there's so many other things that you should be focusing on versus taking that, that I don't really recommend it in my coaching practice.
0: I love that. I think uh, a good piece of advice, just based on what you said is probably, um, don't even consider the supplement version unless you're doing the dietary version as well. You know, maybe it's a booster for what you're doing or if like you're doing some fasting because I think the issue with supplement companies is, like you said, just drink this, don't worry about- a keto diet just drink this yeah. and go go on ketosis and it's like that's that's just not the case things don't work that fast um, okay so shifting gears to metabolic flexibility which is is related to this um, I'd love for you to define it obviously first because there's probably a lot of people listening who don't know exactly what that is um, and then we can kind of dive into how you use it as a protocol because I think there's a lot of different ways that you can spin this or use this for clients based on what they're doing and what they're after right so I'd love for first yeah. a good definition of it and then we can kind of dive into how you use it.
1: Yeah. So metabolic flexibility is simply just, I like to say the ability to just use the full spectrum of your metabolism efficiently. So you're able to use fat and ketones as a fuel source when it's warranted, but you're also able to use glucose and carbs, um, when it's warranted as well. So that is kind of like the, the simple definition. And the biggest thing is being able to efficiently, like we talked about efficiently shift back and forth, depending on what you're doing. Um, is, is the biggest thing here with metabolic flexibility, just being able to, you know, like I said, if you're sitting at your desk all day, like, can you shift into using fat for fuel and potentially using ketones for fuel, um, versus if you're exercising, like, can you use glucose and carbs for fuel efficiently? Um, so that's kind of like the simplest way to define it. Yep. Um, and then just like I mentioned, you know, we are, our ancestors are metabolically flexible by necessity. They were. So it's kind of thinking back to that practicality side of things. Like they didn't have food available all the time. So they had to be metabolically flexible to be able to go through periods of fasting and things like that. Um, so it's kind of just thinking back to that in a, in a practical standpoint.
0: Yeah. I, I, that was one of the things I actually wanted to point out that you said earlier that I really liked, because I think a lot of people look at ancestral dieting and it's either, They were ketogenic or they were paleo and you know there's a lot of research studies now there's even one that showed grains in the paleolithic era but you still have to like ask like how easy was it for them to get grains and and mill them and make them and cook you know what i mean so i think saying that they were metabolically flexible is a perfect way of looking at it because regardless of what they could eat they had to fast probably and certain times it was easier to eat certain things so they went back and forth um so i love the way you put that it's really really good. Now. A better question than how you implement it, which we could still go into that is probably how do you train people to be metabolically flexible? Like, do you have to be like one thought would be, do you have to be pretty lean already to be able to do that? Do you have to be like, okay, you're going to go into ketosis so that you can train your body for that since it's not used to that before we can be metabolically flexible, or is this just all overthinking at this point?
1: No. Yeah. Those are all great questions. There's really no like, like concrete answer to this. Um, I like to, again, put it back to, okay, where are you coming from? Like, where are you at on those sides of the spectrum? Like, are you coming from, like I said, a point where you have never really implemented any type of lower carb protocol into your life? You've never gotten into a state of ketosis since you've been a baby, right? Are you coming from that area? Um, And people refer to this as being like a complete sugar burner, right? Where they're just so, um, you know, reliant on carbohydrates for fuel, you know, maybe, and and this is obviously dependent on like your activity level as well. So if you are someone who's sedentary and you're not really that, that active and you are having like blood sugar dysregulation and you're not able to, um, like you're just, you can't fast at all. Right. Like you just have to eat every few hours. Like you're, you know, have that afternoon slump, all of that stuff. Like if you're on that side of the spectrum versus if you're on the other side of the spectrum, which people don't talk about a lot, is that what I mentioned with being keto for so long, right. And being low carb for so long that their body is now efficiently gone or not efficiently using carbohydrates as fuel, because we know that our bodies are going to adapt to whatever we're doing. Right. So if you have been consuming a low carb ketogenic diet for a long period of time, your body is going to be like, Hey, you know, I, you're not bringing carbs in anymore. So I don't really need to have these, you know, enzymes that are upregulated to digest those carbs and absorb them. Um, I don't really need the machinery to stick around, to be able to utilize those efficiently, um, because you're just not giving them to me. Um, it's kind of this, this, the other end as well. So it's just realizing that our body adapts to those different things. So with being metabolically flexible, you're able to kind of use these different fuels when they're warranted, like I mentioned, but there's no like set, like, Hey, you're metabolically flexible because you did this, or you did that there's different things to look at. Um, and I would say that like, there's some ways to objectively measure if you're metabolically flexible and subjectively measure them, um, which we can go into if you want that there's a lot of things there, but, um, I don't even remember what the original question was
0: (laughs) (laughs) about Uh, well, how to train yourself to get there. But I think, I think Uh, answering that last part you said would be super helpful for that. Just, uh, knowing if you're there, because, um, I mean, I even think of, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but there is like a really, really well-known, I believe he's an ultra, marathon, like, I mean, Mm -hmm. one of those guys that just runs like hundreds of miles or some shit and, uh, he does keto and then carb loads before. And he's a good example of being metabolically flexible. But my assumption is that he doesn't go too long without having carbs so that he doesn't Mm -hmm. remove the ability to actually utilize those when they come in. Um, but, but what can people do to know that they're actually in that state? Like, are these their biofeedback signals, things that they should be looking Uh for with their body to tell them, like, how does that look?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, a few of like the objective met- objective metrics, like it talks about would be if you really want to geek out on this stuff and you're someone who loves, you know, the, like the nerding side of things, the data side of things, um, you know, testing your blood sugar levels, you know, in the morning and like, how are you react to, um, meals. So your postprandial blood sugar, you know, if that's pretty stable, um, if you are very insulin resistant, that's going to be, um, you know, kind of spiked and then crashed afterwards. Um, you're not gonna be able to recover from quote unquote, a meal very well, um, that has carbs in it in the sense of like, we want our blood sugar, blood sugar is going to rise when you consume carbs. That's normal, but you don't want it to, um, you know, go super high and stay there for a while. You also don't want it to come down and crash. Right. So what are your blood sugar levels? Like when you're starting out in the morning, what are they like after your meals? Um, from both sides of the spectrum, even like the the people who have been keto for a long time, they'll have a lot of blood sugar dysregulation because again, their body's not efficiently able to use carbs because they've been gone so long without it. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where people might be more insulin resistant. They can't, they still can't use carbs, but they also can't use fat for fuel. Um, so that's an issue on its own. Um, but that's an objective way is just like testing blood sugar levels, seeing if you do have blood sugar dysregulation, um, You can also test other markers like fasting insulin, things like that, to see where that's at. Um, Also testing your ketones, if you want, that's another objective metric to see if you can get into a state of ketosis relatively quickly. So for me, I used to do that a little bit when I was nerding out on this. It's like, I would eat, you know, a, a bunch of carbs like the night before. And then I would basically see how long it took me to get back into a state of ketosis, you know, next day or day later. Um, and I would kind of test how fast that happened, um, just for fun, but those are more of the objective nerd out nerding outside of things for the subjective part. And the things that I focus on, like with my clients is really just focusing on kind of the overall lifestyle. Like, can you wake up in the morning and like, do you wake up every single morning hungry? Right. That's one thing that is going to obviously play into the blood sugar dysregulation, but do you wake up in the morning hungry every single morning? It's normal for some mornings to to be hungry. Like for me, sometimes I wake up and I'm ravenous probably because I trained a little bit harder the day before or whatever it may be. But if that's an everyday thing, like if you can't wake up and just go like a little bit, like an hour without eating food, that's probably, there's probably something going on there. Um, so that would be one sign that you're a little bit metabolically inflexible. If you can't, you know, go without eating for a few hours, and you're always just looking for food and thinking about food, that's probably a little bit of an issue that obviously there's some psychological, psychological issues there. Um, but if you just feel like you can't go a little bit of a long period of time without eating, so if you can't fast, then that's probably a sign that you know you might be a little bit metabolically inflexible. Um, there's other things as well, like you know, how your energy levels are out throughout the day. If you're always feeling like you're, you know, not you can't focus. Um, so kind of bringing it back to, okay, how do I become more metabolically flexible? That will go back to where you're coming from and what side of the spectrum you're kind of on and how, and really in the sense of just bringing it back to balance is what I like to say. Um, so really the end goal of metabolic flexibility is more of a balanced approach, but it all comes back to that person's original goal and where they're coming from. And if, you know, how active they are versus how sedentary they are how much body fat they have to lose versus how lean they are. Then also there's an exercise component to that as well. Like how, how um, efficient are they at using the different energy systems? Like how can they, you know, train and how efficient are they at, at, you know, using our anaerobic versus aerobic, all of that kind of plays into it as well. Um, So yeah, hopefully that gave you a little bit of a background. There's so many rabbit holes that you can go down with this. So
0: yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I think uh, something for people to consider too, is like um, kind of, like you know, ruling out things that could be causing this as well. And the reason I say that is because uh, a good example of this is like cortisol levels and stress uh, can cause issues with blood sugar dysregulation. So um, manage your stress before you jump into this, just so you can be like, okay, the diet is, is, is working or like, is it the carbs that are causing this? Cause I, you know, even for myself with the fasting, like there has been periods of time where I wake up and I'm like, I need food right away. Right. And I actually, this is very recently started like cutting back on some of my routine so I could sleep more. And fasting is 10 times easier now. I don't even think about food in the morning. And I'm like, you know, I'm not even going to eat at home and eat at the office because I'm just not hungry right away in the morning. And I just got an extra hour, hour and a half of sleep, which probably calmed my stress levels down, which helped, you know? So um, Mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot of things that factor, but that's one that came to my mind. But again, when we talk about like, we're talking about all these ways to test these things like ruling out other shit. So when you test it, you can know you're testing the right oh, yeah. thing, basically. Um, and then the last thing I would love for you to just kind of briefly overview on metabolic flexibility is why would somebody want to do it? Like, what are the main benefits here as far as somebody's listening? And there's probably an array of different goals. Uh, and you know, we, we covered the benefits of keto being a potential diet. Um, I'm assuming some of them might be similar. And obviously there's the adherence perspective, which is actually pretty fucking huge. But, um, what yeah. are the, uh, what are the main benefits that you see clients using this for? Like you giving this prescription to clients for like, why would you give this over yeah. just a normal balanced diet?
1: Yeah. So the, so it's funny you ask that because it is more so moving towards that balanced approach. And that's yeah. really the, the goal of metabolic flexibility is be able, is being able to use more of a balanced approach, but also benefiting from, you know, like I said, being able to, you know, fast for a little bit, long periods of time, being able to utilize ketones for fuel. If, if you find that that's beneficial for your mental clarity, your mental focus, things like that. Um, but then also being able to use carbs. Right. So I think that, you know, my whole thing with metabolic flexibility, it's really, there's no like set. Like, Hey, you're metabolically flexible. If you can do this, it doesn't really work like that. It's really something that you're kind of, it's like the end goal, but you're never going to actually reach that end goal. Right. It's, so it's kind of being able to structure your nutrition so that it works with what you're doing at the time. So you mentioned stress is a huge thing. Um, I think that there's something behind putting yourself into a stressful state for a period of time. And we know that ketosis can actually be a stress on your body. If you, um, if you haven't been in it before, And that can be a good stress. And then it can be a bad stress if you do it too long, same with fasting. Um, so it's kind of finding that balance between these things and utilizing them in a way that works for you. Um, but I think the benefits of metabolic flexibility is just like having more of that balanced approach. And like I said, I work with a lot of people who are coming from low carb keto and they are just so psychologically afraid of carbs, but then obviously physiologically they, their body is so on that spectrum as well, that they have, they've adapted away from it. So it's coming back to that side of it and bringing a little bit more in the, in the middle. And then same with someone who has been carb dependent for their whole life. And they, maybe they have had issues with, you know, being super food focused, appetites all over the place, blood sugars all over the place, and they need to bring in a little bit of a lower carb approach. Um, so but that means that it just all comes down to that individual approach and finding out where they're at. And then, like you said, the stress is such a big component to it. Um, and then their, their training as well is going to play a role. Um, and going into like different, we talked about this on my pad, podcast, periodization of training and using different fuel sources to benefit those different times as well. Um, and just kind of being uh, more aware of it and, and using it in that sense. So
0: yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think even as I said, uh, over a balanced approach, I kind of, it kind of clicked. And as you said, I'm like, yeah, it's actually a more balanced. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think even like people ask me about the vegan diet, which I'm not typically, particularly a fan of, but one of the reasons is like, Hey, well, you're just going to miss out on a lot of nutrients that your body probably needs, mm-hmm. um, which can happen in keto and it can happen in a low fat. So I think it's good to be able to like, let's not skip out on anything that we don't need to, mm-hmm. you know, allow these things in. So, um, this has been great. I think this is, uh, this is all metabolic flexibility and Keto, we've really never dove into. So, this has been great for that. Um, Metabolic flexibility, we've talked with Dr. Mike T. Nelson more on the training angle years ago, like two years ago, I think him on the podcast. So uh, it's been a while since we covered this topic. So it's been great to bring it back up and, and give it to the listeners as a new uh, refresher. Um, and I think we did a great job kind of covering everything. So thank you for that. And then obviously before I do let you go, tell us where people can find you. Your content is great. So I know you're on Instagram, but like your podcast, your social media, your website, where can people go find um, all that you're putting out and offer? Yeah, sure.
1: Thanks. I, I mean, I had a blast chatting with you both times. And I really appreciate you having me on. Um, so my podcast, which you will be on coming out in a few weeks is Metflex and chill. Um, you can find that on any podcast platform and then on YouTube as well. Um, my website is called metflexlife.com and that's got all my stuff on it. Uh, programs, things like that, free blogs, recipes, all that jazz. And then Instagram is probably where I'm most active, um, at rachelgregory.cns.
0: Perfect. We'll link all that in the description for you guys listening. Um, she's got a lot of great podcast episodes, solo, and a bunch of great interviews. Um, and remember, that's Metflex. So uh, when you type it on Google sometimes, especially mm-hmm. on your phone, it'll autocorrect to Netflix. Netflix. Um, and that's what happened to okay. me, too. So catch that. It's like metabolic, <laughs> so you guys know. Uh, but we'll link that in the show notes so you guys can check it out. And uh, Rachel, once again, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.